who has been journeying with me in my ministry, because you sometimes during our week, we feel that God, where is he? Right? Where is he? Is he doing anything? Well, he is. Okay? And I hope this, you find that that's encouraging. All right. Let's get to it. Let's get to our sermon for today. And we are continuing on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Pastor Fritz uh, finished off with chapter 5, one, one of the toughest chapters in this book. And now I am approached, we are now going into chapter 6, another tough chapter in the book. Uh, this is one, one of the three. So chapter 5, 6, and 7 were, are the toughest chapters in this book of 1 Corinthians. And we will be embarking in chapter 6. Now, before we go into chapter 6, we're going to quickly do a review of, chap- of all this, the chapters that we've done. So chapter 1, what is the central point? The central point is that we are now in Christ. We were once sinners, but now we are in Christ, and in Christ, in him, we have redemption, holiness, and righteousness. Chapter 2, we said that, well, in the world of this universe, this universe operates under karma. You, you reap what you sow. Uh, you get what you deserve. Well, Jesus flips that and says, no, you know that what you deserve, you know that punishment, the sin, death, because of your sin, I take that away. Through my death and resurrection, that's taken away. But I'm going to give you, if you believe in me, I will give you righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Things that we do not deserve. All right? That was chapter two. Chapter three. Chapter three, we're talking about the building. And we said the central point is the only building that lasts is built on Jesus' foundation, out of Jesus' mindset, and resembles him. But so what can that be? What is that type of building that we are to build? Disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus. And for chapter four, our role model is Jesus and those who imitate him. And lastly, last week, chapter five, God is pure and holy. He calls us to be pure and holy. Why? It's because the pattern of life that he has laid out to be pure and holy will allow us to reach to our fullest potential of what he has ordained for each of us. You follow? There's this eternal life now. Our, our life is only, our physical life on this planet is only this blip. But we have this internal life ahead of us. And God is calling us to be pure and holy now, to live out a pattern of life that he tells us now to fulfill that full potential that we have in the front of us. All right, chapter six. Now, before we go into chapter six, let's uh, quickly watch a little video. Homer. Homer. That's it. That's the one. All right, send them on in. Dad? Yes, honey? Um, Mom just baked a cake. (gasps) (laughs) Homer, we need to have a serious talk. You dragged me all the way from work for that. Let's quietly and calmly discuss the pros and cons of your controversial plan, shall we? I... Con, you're endangering your health. Pro, I'm drought and famine resistant. Con, you're setting a bad example for the children. Pro, I uh, don't have to go to work. Con, you're running the air conditioner nonstop. It's freezing in here. Pro, uh, uh, I love you. Con, I'm finding myself less attracted to you physically. My 
Marge. This is everything I've ever dreamed of right here. And nobody's going to take it away from me. You never had faith in me before. But let me tell you, the slim, lazy Homer you knew is dead. Now I'm a big, fat dynamo. And where's that cake? There's no cake. All right, so the theme is, uh, I'm going to start off with this. I have rights. Ever heard of that statement? I have rights. I have the right to do what makes me happy, right? So what is a right? Now, today, in like especially now, right, uh, the, the word right has been tossed around a lot, right? So let's quickly define it. What's a right? Well, there's, it's divided into two parts. There's the moral entitlements and the legal entitlements. Defined as, so right is defined as a moral or legal entitlement given to us. So there are two types. So what's the legal entitlement? Like, let's just go with the legal one first. Well, if you ever drive on the freeway, especially Highway 99 or 91, the maximum speed limit is 90. What? Yes. <laughs> right? 90 kilometers per hour. So what is your legal entitlement? To drive from zero to 90. Follow? Yes. Well, anyways, within that time frame, right? So you, you, you have every right to do that, okay? But if you go above it, you don't have that right to go above that speed limit. You follow? Okay? So that's a legal right. And uh, for the moral entitlements, this is where it gets tricky because it's not governed or enforced by civil rights or liberties. It's not governed by the Charter of Rights. It's not governed by the law, right? One of those, uh, like, uh, what I'm I'll just give you an example. Uh, I sleep with, I just slept with a UPS driver or something, right? Like, and I'm married. Well, there's no legal enforcement on that. But what there is, is a moral enforcement. It's based on your morals, right? Your entitlements are restricted by your morals then, okay? Follow? In chapter six, we are actually addressing, and Paul is addressing, moral entitlements. Not the legal ones, it's the moral ones. Not, and instead of paraphrasing the central point and trying to figure out, you know, Paul actually made a good one. So I'm just going to give it to you right now. He says this in chapter 6, verse 12. And if your Bibles turn with me to chapter 6, verse 12. He says this. This is a central point for this entire chapter. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Okay, follow? I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. This is, what the first, this is what the Corinthians said. I have a right to do anything that I want to make me happy. But then Paul says in there, yes, but, I, but not everything is beneficial. And also, you cannot be mastered by it. That's our central point for this morning. Now, we will do something different this morning in this chapter because I realized that it is a letter, and we have to read it in its entirety. And a lot of stuff has already been set place, right? Of, and we need to revisit that before we go into the issue. The problem with this chapter, sometimes, for many people, is that we read the top part. We're very chronological. So we start in the beginning, and we read and read and read. And then suddenly we get shocked and shell-shocked. It says, whoa, I don't like that. And then we forget everything else at the end, right? Well. <laughs> Unfortunately, Paul, this is a letter, and so we have to remember what was in the beginning, and he reiterated it, reiterated it in the end of this chapter. So what we're going to do is work backwards. We're going to start from the bottom, 
and then work ourselves way back to the issue itself, the two issues. One being sex, and the other one being taking your brother or sister to court, okay? You follow? That's what we're gonna do. So, first off, let's go from the bottom. The bottom, you notice, is that uh, if you have your Bibles and you're looking at it, the bottom, what is Paul trying to remind us? He's reminding us of who we are in Jesus. Who are we? You notice that Paul, whenever he approaches a dispute or some problem, if you ever read 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, whatever, right, or whatever the letter that you read, he always first says, reminds us, reminds his audience, who are you in Jesus? Okay? Who are you? And so in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5, he did that. He goes, who are you? Right? So well, how does he say it? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, who are you, Paul asks and, and actually states, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So Paul says, first, who are you? First, we, you and I, are temples of God. Each of us. Each of us, priceless stones of gold and silver. Remember that chapter? Remember that one about the priceless gold and silver and going through the furnace? He says that each of us are priceless stones of gold and silver, parts of God's temple. You are God's temple. Not just corporately as a church, you're not like coming into it and suddenly they all become a temple, right? You are, a God, you are God's temple even out there on your own. I still remember a friend, um, he pastors a church called F3C. His name is Ted Ng. He always tells his church that before they leave, is that remember this, you don't go to church, you are the church, right? I like that line. So first of all, you are a temple of God. And because you're a temple of God, Paul goes on to say, who is your resident in your temple, in your house? What does he say? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a permanent resident in our house. Sometimes we forget that the Holy Spirit is living in each of us 24-7, right? Sometimes we forget. He's a fully conscious person in you, living in you. We can't just say to the Holy Spirit and say, goodbye, earmuffs, blind eye, don't look at me. I'm just going to do this, but you can't see, you know, leave. Take a vacation to Mexico or something. You can't do that. The Holy Spirit is residing in us. And he desires us to let him take over us. He wants to overwhelm us. He wants to, what we call, fill us, right? And what does that mean? It is to take over us, our decisions, our thoughts, our actions, and everything, so that we can live to our fullest potential that God has given us. Remember that full potential? He wants us to get there. So he is our counselor, our coach. Jesus presides, so Jesus, provides us with a specific life pattern, right? Right through the Gospels, he has given us a specific life pattern. And he gives us the Holy Spirit, like as he did with the whole disciples. He gives us the Holy Spirit to do what? To empower us, to counsel us, to achieve it. All right? Second, what is the second truth about us? Who are we? We were bought at a high price. It costed Jesus' life. We were bought at a high price. It costed, we costed Jesus' life. All of us. He, his life, he died for us. Which means we're not our own owner. 
Jesus owns us. It is Jesus who owns us. It means that our bodies is kind of like an Airbnb, right? Like you are told, like we are, like Rosanna and I are going on a trip, okay? And so uh, once I got this Airbnb, first time, by the way, we're freaking out because we don't know what we're going to expect. But like the owner of that place gave us some rules. He goes, do this, do that, don't touch this, and do this, do this, do this, do this. Why? Because who knows the house best? The owner. And then what does he want us to do? To, well, hopefully, it says Airbnb, you know, the policies, is to help us enjoy his place, right? He doesn't want us to make a catastrophe of it. He doesn't want, he, he doesn't want us to get into accidents or misplace things or push the wrong button and then everything gets, goes up in flames, right? And destroy our vacation. What the owner wants is for our enjoyment to enjoy the place to the fullest. So if Jesus owns our bodies, gives us a specific rules and instructions and pattern, it's not about do's and don'ts. It's not to limit us. It's because he knows our bodies the best. And he wants to have us be able to enjoy our bodies the best without any catastrophes. Without any, oops, I pushed the wrong button and I'm going up in flames now. You follow? He gave us a life pattern, a set of rules not to restrict us. It is to enable us to reach the full potential of what God has made us to be. All right? So let us review, because I, we really need to get to these two points and review it well before we approach the issues. First, there is a permanent resident in each of us, and that is the Holy Spirit. He is a person, fully conscious, 24-7. Just think of it through. Think of that reality. Fully conscious, 24-7, knows everything that we do and think. Let us sink in. Second, who owns us? Jesus. He paid a big price, humongous price for each of us. Whether it be us right now, people in the future, or people in the past. He says, it's done. I have paid the price. And so all of humanity is owned by him. Now, whether they're like, whether humanity, whether each person believes that and acknowledges the owner, that's another story. But he owns us, all right? Okay, let's move on. So what's the first issue? Let's talk about sex. First Corinthians, that's a tune. I don't know if you know it. It's a, it just, okay, only, only Brian and Janice knew it. Okay, that kind of dated me. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15 to 17. First issue. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Sex, and I mean physical, you know, that you, sex, I'm glad none of the kids are here. All right, like the full encounter, right? None of the like, and you know what, it's the, you know, the full on thing, protected or unprotected or whatever orifices that suits people fancy these days, sex, okay? Paul defines it though, as a union between two flesh. So when you have sex, when you and I have sex, what does he say? You're married. You know this ring thing here? And the certificate and the celebrations and the ceremonies that we do? That's not in the Bible. 
that's not even, uh, that's a Western thing. In our Chinese culture, especially in Asian cultures and Southeast Asian and Indian cultures, what's really important is the bed, the marriage bed. And that's why they decorate it, they value it. It's because once the couple has sex, in their minds and in the Bible's minds, they're married, united in one flesh. So that's why we go into Songs of Songs. Whenever I do a wedding ceremony, I always go to this verse. It says this, Songs of Songs 2, verse 16, or Song of Solomon, whatever you, like your version says. The young woman, the spouse, says, my lover is mine and I am his. Notice that? Union. And they were having sex. When two people unite in sex, the statement being made is this, I am yours and you are mine. Ownership. I own you, you own me. There's ownership, and so what happens when you, when you have sex with someone for just a fling? What happens if you and I have, have sex with someone with no intention of marrying them, but it's just for pure entertainment or self-pleasure? We are allowing co-ownership. You follow? Co-ownership. Why do I say that? Remember that we're owned by Jesus. He paid a big price for us, remember that principle? He paid a huge price for us, his life. So for you and I, so we acknowledge that and now he acknowledges that and he is our rightful owner. He owns us. The one who does not have Jesus as her or his owner, who is the owner of their bodies? Who do they think owns their bodies? They do. They themselves own their bodies. So what happens? A co-op happens, right? However, Jesus hates co-ops. He doesn't want a co-op. What? I don't want a co-op. I want to be the sole owner. I paid the biggest price. Either Jesus is the sole owner of you both or not an owner for you both. That's his condition. Either I'm the sole owner or I'm not the owner of both of you. That's his reasoning. Because he is not into the co-op business. And hence, marriage and sex go in hand in hand. My wife, she is owned by Jesus. I know that for a fact. I am owned by Jesus, and I know that, hopefully, I know for a fact, right? When we have sex, Jesus is still the owner. You follow? Why is it so important to not have co-owners? It's because how can you or I live out our fullest potential of who God made us to be if two owners can't even agree on what our fullest potential is? You follow? How can you and I how can you and I, as Christians, live out for our fullest potential if our two owners are in conflict? They have a conflicting views of who this potential should be, look like. So, hence, why do Christian pastors, like myself, like Pastor Fritz, like Pastor Brian, why do we urge every Christian to try not to unite with a non-Christian? It's because, it's not because we're a bunch of party poopers. Right? It's not because we don't want the best, uh, the, what's really what you want to feel. We want the best for you. We want to live, you to be able to live out to your fullest potential that God has given you because that is for eternity, not just for this splice of life right? that we call life here on earth. I know, you know, sometimes it's very hard to touch it, like not stop, not stop touching each other. You know, maybe th this person just loves me so much. Maybe I can't find another person, right? Maybe you're like, but that dude or dudette loves me so much. I love them and blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah, but did that dude or dudette die for you? No, Jesus did. Jesus paid the highest price for you. So, when we don't, when we disobey, and when we unite with somebody else that is a non-believer, what are we actually saying to Jesus? I'll tell you, really bluntly. Jesus, your sacrifice is cheap. I think it's cheap. It's not worth it. You know what? My happiness is more worth it than yours, your sacrifice. I see it as cheap. Your cross, cheap. Your death, cheap. My redemption, holiness, righteousness, cheap. Nah. Are you willing to tell that to the Holy Spirit within and the Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, the same thing? Hard teachings, right? That's why we need to start off with the principles first. Now, I want to take a moment for Christians who are in sexual relationships with non-Christians. Paul gave a scenario in the latter chapters talking about how the couple were non-believers first and then one of them became a believer and he explains how that is okay. I'm not talking about that. I'm cool with that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the situations where Christians have consciously, under their free will, made the choice of having sex and eventually married the unbeliever. I'm talking about that one. I want to say this loud and clear. Jesus loves you. He He will always love you. Jesus will forgive you as long as you repent and change your ways. Jesus loves you so much that he's willing to wait and actually empower you with his Holy Spirit to overcome. So what is the advice? If you're not married yet and you're having sex with this guy or girl that is an unbeliever, stop and go back to Jesus. Pray and allow us to pray with you. For his grace is immense and his mercy is immense. It overflows and goes right off the table, right? For even at the lowest of dogs that could get. Well, I'm telling you now, if you are, any of you, sleeping, living, sleeping together with an unbeliever, remember this, first and foremost, you're owned by Jesus and Jesus loves you dearly. Yes, you might say, you might, you might say your sacrifice is cheap. Well, guess what the prodigal son said? Dad, you're cheap. But then guess what dad did? Received him and chased after him. And that's what Jesus would do for you. So allow the church, allow us to pray with you, pray for you, help, like pray, pray for your, pray for your partner, and maybe the, your partner will be moved by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus. My hope was when, uh, when people come to me and say, I, well, "I'm really in love with this person," well, you know what? I see it as more of an opportunity then. Allow me to talk to that person then. Allow us to do Alpha together. Allow us to at least give me the opportunity to share the gospel with them and pray with them and for them so that God will move that person to receive Jesus. Because if you don't, again, is Jesus cheap? Now, if, if for those who on the video who are watching, now for those who may have already married and have kids, right? Have kids. Well, guess what? Like Paul says, you are the number one first contact of the gospel and Jesus for your spouse. So what is the ultimate responsibility? 
to live out a Christ-centered life. We will actually go into chapters 8 and, eight and 10 later on about alluding it back to this. But we have such a humongous responsibility as Christians to be a good living testimony of the gospel for our spouse. Amen? We cannot be worried about money. We cannot be worried about our career. We cannot be worried about our advancements. We cannot worry about our kids so much if our spouse is a non-Christian. We have to, have to, have to say that Jesus is my Lord and Savior and is in my center of my life and I am not worried. We have hope and faith in Jesus and he will provide. And then if you find it really tough to do this, guess what? God will reward your faithfulness. He is faithful. And if we pray together, if you allow us, Pastor Fritz or myself or all the pastors, pray for you and pray for your spouse, I am faithful that God will move your spouse as, and bless and honor your sacrifices that you have made and the faith and the, and the endurance and the burden and the tough slot through to try to become these Christ-centered as much as possible. Well, guess what? It does happen. Spouses do turn and spouses do receive Jesus. I've seen it. As long as the other one, the believer, is faithful. Okay. Okay. Next one. Now, chapter 6, verse 8 to 11. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, or nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what is of some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, Paul now broadens this, right? He actually just reinforces that this is about moral entitlements. The whole host of other acts that are not according to Jesus' life instructions. Paul says, you were sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus, and by the Spirit of God. In other words, you are now Jesus' possession, and the Holy Spirit is now dwelling in you. Sure, even though the secular law does not forbid you from having sex for enjoyment, just because the law does not forbid you to lie, slander, cheat, or be drunk, and sleep around, and then like sleep with men slaves and boy slaves, that's what it meant, it does not mean that it is permissible, right? Drunkenness is not permissible in the new life that you're living, a Jesus life. Jesus gave you and I a pattern of life to follow so that we can live to our fullest potential. So we have a choice to make, right? Paul is saying, you want Jesus or you? Jesus has a life pattern for you to have a full potential life, or do you want your definition of a full potential life? Now, some of you say, oh, how dare you, right? You have just impeded on my rights to be happy, right? How dare you, John, that you just told me that I cannot do what I want to do because I want to be happy. I want to be like them. I want to be normal. Like, okay, some of the, some of the ladies I met, like the reason why they want to get married is I want to be normal. I'm like, funny, because you're talking to the guy who's never normal. <laughs> you know, ever since grade school, like I still remember, like, um, what is it? Uh, my teacher goes uh, in front of my mom, yeah, Jonathan, he's a special child. And then my mom goes, no, he's normal. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, 
You know, as if it's like a bad thing, right? So, you know, like, so I get this. I, I get it. I get it, right? And he goes, unfair, cruel. You know, how dare you? Jesus, you're so unfair. You're so exclusive, blah, blah, blah. I get a lot from that too. Atheists tell me, you know, hey, like, you know, Christianity, I don't believe it because it's so exclusive. Well, guess what? Why do you care, atheist? Because you don't believe in heaven, so why do you want to go there anyway? Right? We have a life pattern that goes to a heaven that you don't even believe, so why do you care? It's not exclusive. Choose another school then. Right? You don't need to go to TW. There's like 83 freaking other law schools out there. Just go to those schools. You get it? Right? So, you know, yeah, I get it. It's unfair. It's, it's, it's so constricting. Well, guess what? It is. And I have to admit that sometimes I have to say to some people, Christianity may not be your thing. Maybe this whole eternal life gig is too hard. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe you're like right now in this room thinking that it's too tough. Well, get out. You don't have to do this. It's a waste of your time. Every Sunday, man, come to this church. Right? Do this whole gig. You just lost an hour and you got here. Right? Why do you want it? It's because inside your heart, you know that there's something bigger than you. That there is this whole humongous life potential that God has given each of us, and you want to know what it is. And you want to know why it's so amazing that everyone's talking about it. That over 3.2, how many? I can't even remember how many Christians are on this planet. But so many people are willing to die for this. It's because of this full potential of eternal life that they want that's better than what you have now, they want that. And that's why they're here. And that's why they slaw through snow in New York to get to their church. That is why people are die in Africa to get to their church. It's because of that. You follow? Jesus, they acknowledge that Jesus paid a big price. They acknowledge that they get, Jesus gave us a life pattern to follow because there's a humongous potential at the end. That there is life after death that there is a bigger life ahead of us. I personally want a body that is like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, with a, with a liver of a black guy, you know, so that I could drink as much as I can and eat steak with no problem. You know, but you know what I mean. The glorious body awaits us, right? Sorry, I had to throw that in. All right, so what does Paul say about those people uh, who take people to court? Remember what he said about the trivial cases? He says this, he says, you are taking your brothers and sisters over trivial matters, trivial cases. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes in such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Now, guess what the trivial cases were then? It was this, the pattern of life that Jesus gave us. Think of it this way. I'm telling you this in Corinthian church. I'm telling you that, no, you cannot get drunk. You cannot have sex foolishly. And no, you have to do this because a potential life is awaiting for you. Some of the Corinthians in the church actually sued those people who told them not to do it. Because why? They're impeding on their rights. How many of us can see it now today, right? When we, uh, like, when we say something to somebody and say, well, you're impeding on my rights. Well, we're in a nice society here. But in Corinth, they sued. They took their brothers and sisters to court on moral issues, right? Pastor Fritz had preached about the chapter before it. You know that, uh, you know, remember that brother who slept with uh, his father's new wife? 
you know that that was illegal anyways in society? That was illegal. That was illegal in Roman law. And that's why Paul says, throw that guy out so that he could get persecuted and judged under secular court so he could get punished for it. And then when he get, finds repentance and know that he did wrong, let's welcome him back in. You get it? That's why he said, let Satan have his day on him. It's because he wants, he, he's blatantly doing something illegal. So I see so many times in this passage that people, especially churches now these days, when it's a legal matter, when there's sexual abuse, when there's scandal, exploitation, like child abuse, pastors at the top say, we should not you know, take that brother to court. We should just keep it in our side. No, <laughs> we should go to chapter five and throw that dude out, right? And let the, let the courts handle him, right? Or her, right? mainly him, mostly it's him, right? It's like, throw that guy out into the secular court and let, that, let the secular court punish him so that when he comes back, let's welcome him back after he claims repentance. You follow? That was chapter five. This is chapter six. It's about morals. No, when it comes to morals, no, those Corinthians who are telling you to stand firm are right. So be wrong, Paul says. Be cheated. You do feel wrong, don't you, when your rights are, are violated. You do feel wrong when, the, when I tell you, you can't drink and get drunk. You do feel violated when you can't you know, say, I'm angry against my brother. Well, you can't do that. You have to show mercy, right? You have every right to take revenge, but Jesus says, no, you're not. And then you go, but I have every right. No, feel wrong and feel cheated for not being able to do that, Paul says. Because you know why? Look at the potential. The full life potential that awaits us. The amazing life, glorious bodies that we will have at the end awaits us. Amen.